This interview was recorded on June 8th, 2021. Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Marco San Pellegrini. Based in Milan, Marco is a software engineering consultant who works with startups and founders on everything from product development to cloud infrastructure. You can follow him on Twitter at underscore alpaca with two extra A's at the end, and check out his website at marcosanpellegrini.com. Marco is the author of the book, The Simple Haskell Handbook, Learn How to Build Haskell Applications. In the book, rather than focusing on theory or formally teaching the programming language, Marco takes readers through the process of building something practical in Haskell from scratch. In this interview, we're going to talk about Marco's background and career, professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience writing and self-publishing. So thank you very much, Marco, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first found yourself becoming interested in computers and programming and software. Sure. So I was born in a town near Milan in Italy. And I come from a working class family. So there wasn't a lot of tech going on in my in my home. And one thing that I specifically missed in my teens was an internet connection. So I remember going through high school with all of my peers, you know, chatting and, uh, you know, spending their time in whichever uh, social, uh, you know, social website was popular at the time. And I felt left out and I felt like this great invention that was the internet was kind of uh, not available to me. And that really felt, felt bad. So um, eventually when I was 17, we got an internet connection and that's when I started going down the rabbit hole. And my interest wasn't specifically in programming initially. I was uh, explicitly fascinated about the internet and the fact that we had this global worldwide network full of things, full of interesting things, but you couldn't point at exactly one place where those things lived. To me, that sounded completely crazy and I wanted to find out more about it. So I started building little static websites with, you know, I think it was front page and Dreamweaver, those kind of uh, programs back then and there were free website hosting uh, back then the one I, I used offered like 20 megabytes of space <laughs> or something like that and so that's where I started you know publishing my first uh, toy websites and you know the thing I realized is that you know static websites are cool, but I want to do dynamic stuff. I want to build a forum. I want to know, you know, how people deal with users posting messages and users logging in and sending emails and all of that stuff. So that was that. That's what triggered my interest in programming, really. And that free web hosting offered support for PHP. So that's the language I uh, eventually got to learn. And I loved PHP, I loved dynamic typing. I felt like I had superpowers and it was really, really fun. Uh, so when I finished high school, it was kind of a no brainer for me to uh, get a job and do this kind of stuff full time. I wanted to get my hands dirty and learn as much as I could about programming. 
And I've done a couple, a few years in uh, web agencies. Uh, so I would take on projects that would last maybe a month, maybe three months. And yeah, it was really, really fun. Um, after that, um, I was kind of craving for um, being part of a team. So during my time in agencies, I would be the only developer on the team, or it was not common for me to share, you know, code base with another developer or other two. So I really wanted to know what it was like to work with other people, and I wanted to learn from them as well. So that's when I started looking into startups and maybe working on a product in a more of a long-term fashion. So in agencies, projects came and go, came and went. Um, and it was great because every time I could start fresh and I could apply uh, the knowledge that I gathered from the previous project. But it also meant that, you know, I never faced the problems that you face when you have to maintain an application for years and there is a team working on it. You're not the only person uh, working on it. So um, I joined a startup. It was a pretty big startup in Milan and it had a pretty big team. In fact, there were multiple teams within the company. And yeah, that taught me a lot. And it kind of showed me that you know, maybe PHP and dynamic typing isn't the end of it all. Like it became apparent to me that, uh, you know, it was really easy to snag bugs into production. And even if you had a lot of tests, um, you know, things break, things broke all the time anyway. And so that's when I first got, uh, you know, a hunch that maybe there was something to static typing, maybe languages such as Java weren't all that bad. Up to that point, I absolutely hated uh, stuff like Java because of the verbosity and the, and the types. I couldn't understand why people would go through all of that added noise when you could just do the thing you wanted to do in languages such as PHP. And yeah, I could go on if this isn't too boring. <laughs> no, no, so, no, it's, it's very interesting. Actually, just before you go on, I was wondering if you wouldn't uh, um, uh, mind explaining the difference between static and dynamic typing, because the non-programmers listening might think we're talking about like keyboard typing. Um, <laughs> sure. Yeah. So in a dynamically typed language, such as PHP or JavaScript, you go about writing your code and you don't know whether it's going to work or not uh or re like really you can't make any you can't prove anything about the code you just written until you run it so the usual workflow is that you start your application and you refresh the page or you run your test and you found out and you find out if there's anything wrong with it uh whereas with a static static statically typed language such as Java or Haskell, um, there is a compiler. So you get an extra check for um, uh, a program that tells you, hey, this thing you wrote here doesn't really make sense. 
And it could be, you know, a dumb error like using a string where an int should have been used. You know, those errors are really trivial, but it's still useful that a compiler catches them for you. But in Ascol in particular, uh, um, you know, the compiler gives you a lot of room to express your domain and your problem in a particularly explicit way. And so when you get down to modeling your domain uh, using you know, union types and stuff like that, you uh, get more guarantees about uh, what your how your program is going to behave and whether it is correct or not, even before you actually run it. It's it's really interesting. It, it sounds like um, there's a sort of um, correspondence in your in your path and the types of things that the kinds of the kinds of programming languages that you used because uh, I didn't I didn't know your origin story before you you just told it now but um you know you it, you were very independent it sounds like um not only in your in your you know choice to be interested in in the internet and and in programming and things like that but you just started creating your own web pages and without going to university or anything like that you just got jobs uh and then those jobs were alone um <laughs> uh and and you you got to be you sort of you know got what many people would have loved to be the privilege of being doing things on your own for so long but eventually realizing that you know actually maybe working with other people or i, I imagine things like legacy code and and things like that start to become more important but before we go on to talk about so now now, now we're at the kind of like stage where you're moving transitioning from one one thing to another but um I wanted to ask you a question. So this comes up um, uh, on this podcast relatively frequently where I sort of ask people, if you could have gone another way, uh, would you have preferred to have gone that way on, on the path towards the same career? Um, so for example, and I'm sure you get this question from time to time, um, do you regret not studying computer science formally in, in university for a few years? Yeah, so I don't regret it. And as I said, uh, my family wouldn't have had the means to support me in such an endeavor, which meant I would have had to get a job anyway. And at that point, I think I would I would have just burned out after not even a year. And most importantly, I didn't find it interesting. Like, I, I know this is something I was very stubborn at the time and, and naive. I still am to a certain extent. And so, you know, I thought I, I knew better and I could learn the, the stuff that I cared about on my own or, you know, with the help of forums and strangers on the internet. But, you know, at some point, um, like one thing I think is really, um, like going to university, it really helps you if you want to move abroad, specifically in the US. At some point, I tried to get a visa. It, it wasn't even, you know, a long-term staying visa. It was a two years, I think, kind of visa. And it got rejected specifically because the, you know, the officer didn't think I had the skills needed to perform the job, which came down to not having uh, a degree. So that was the, the first time I realized, hmm, maybe it was, it would have been worth spending the three years or five years to get a computer science degree. But other than that, you know, in the last couple of years and last three years, I'm realizing that, uh, um, you know, how helpful 
computer science like uh, sometimes i'm lacking the the foundations i feel like so all of the stuff that i sort of skipped over and glanced over uh in the beginning uh it's it started to come out uh, as i approached more and more and more complex uh projects and it's not like it's a big gap like i feel i can fill in the the gaps as i as i go through but you know it would have been fairly interested to study maybe distributed systems early on in my career or studying compilers early on in my career um you know one thing that uh so i don't regret not going to university and especially i don't regret it because if i went in university in milan i wouldn't have learned those topics anyway they're not thought it's not like going to mit so it is what it is i i, I overall i don't regret it no yeah thanks very much for sharing that um it's it's always i, I always at least find it very interesting to hear about people's decisions that they made along the way and you know of course when you're young what do you know uh, so there's always a little bit of accident to, to everything that happens. Um, and uh, yeah, to, to hear people talk about whether or not they would have wanted to do it differently is always just really fascinating. Um, uh, and in a way, it's, I mean, usually the answer is kind of like, of course not, I'd be someone else if I'd done things differently. But uh, yeah, so anyway, so um, there you found yourself um, going from being very independent all the way along. And as you said, you know, it's, it sounds like you learned a lot, you know, just by getting Dreamweaver and using it and banging away and being stubborn and then, you know, meeting people online and forums and things like that. But so then you found yourself at this sort of, it sounds like relatively well-funded big startup and you had to work with teams and basically writing code that other people would be using and sharing. And so, uh, yeah, I was wondering if we could pick up, if you could pick up the narrative again from there. Yeah, so I wasn't ready to give up on dynamically typed languages yet, but at that point I started to have a feeling that maybe there was something to stately typed languages. Uh, with that being said, I switched off from PHP, but I landed on JavaScript, so it was pretty much the same deal in terms of uh, typing. And that was about the time where Node.js was starting to get big and React entered the scene and was becoming big as well. And again, uh, using React and Redux in particular, um, again, I, I, I was confronted with um, themes and concepts that I sort of heard through over the years, but I didn't really investigate like immutability or the fact that in Redux, you have to have um, a single source of truth. So all, all the flow of your application must go through a funnel, if you like, and all of the state is centralized in a single place. And you know that's, that was a, a way of thinking about my application that I never had before. It didn't occur to me that you could model things this way, and it didn't occur to me that you could do useful stuff with an immutable language, which JavaScript obviously is not. So these all felt like playing with a toy, but not uh, getting the, the actual good stuff. And so, you know, if you add that to the statically typed thoughts that I had before, I started to really looking for a language that could 
you know, check all of those boxes. And Haskell came up and I couldn't understand any of it. <laughs> like it was full of strange stuff, strange operators and, you know, greater than, greater than equals signs everywhere. Didn't make any sense. And even reading a few pages of, you know, tutorials over blog posts, they were full of terms I never heard of. And so I felt really dumb at that point, but I wasn't ready to give up. And fortunately, I came upon Elm, which is the language that inspired uh, Redux, I think. So it was sort of related to the React word. And uh, Elm clicked, like Elm was really terse. It was, it was really simple. It didn't have all of the big terms that I read about uh, when looking into Haskell. And it was a slow process, but I managed to pick it up. And I felt like that was a really great choice. And it was great to deal with, like it was great to finally experience what it meant to work with a language with these kind of features. And so I managed to land uh, an Elm job. Uh, I would do Elm most of the time and a little bit of Elixir as well. And I was kind of the person that knew Elm uh, better in the company. Um, this was a company that was really uh, willing to bet on Elm and Elixir as well, but I was interested in, in the Elm part. And so we started building a lot of applications with it. We started to become more proficient with it and to understand more about you know, static typing and how to model our domain correctly. And all the while, I kept, I, uh, you know, I kept an eye on Haskell. I, I, I wasn't willing to give up on it. And you know, I picked up some books, and slowly but surely, I finally, you know, could understand a little bit of it and write little programs with it. And you know, as long as I kept my programs looking more like Helm that they did Haskell they seem to work properly and I seem to be able to understand them. And so after this experience with Elma, I wanted to sort of replicate it with Haskell. So, you know, I would just get a job where I get to write Haskell full time and I'm sure I can get better at it. So I moved to London and worked for Habito for a couple of years. And that's where, you know, my brain really exploded. That's where I managed to learn a ton about functional programming and Haskell and all the math behind it as well. That's something that I ignored completely up to that point. And yeah, I met some exceptional people. Um, I went to conferences. It was really, really great. Thanks very much for that. Um, it's it's funny. Uh, Long-time listeners of the show are going to know that my next question is going to be kind of selfish, and it's going to be, um, where did you live when you were in London? Um, I lived there for a few years myself, and I lived in a few different neighborhoods. And one time I actually had a guest on who was at that very moment living in the first neighborhood I lived in when I moved to oh, London wow. in, in Balham. So yeah, I was wondering nice. if you wouldn't mind taking a moment talking about that, because that, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's something that actually quite a few people who've been on the podcast have had that experience of moving from somewhere to London. Yeah, so my neighbor, neighborhood of choice in London is Wapping, which is just next to Tower Bridge. 
and I love it. It's a very quiet area. There is a nice uh, canal in, in the middle of it. And, and yeah, a lot of people that I met uh, completely uh, disliked it because there's nothing to do there. But I loved it precisely because there's nothing to do there. Like it's quiet. There is, you know, the nice river walk. I, uh, and it was close to work. Like I could get to work in less than 15 minutes uh, on foot, which was great. Yeah, ultimately, I ended up making that decision for my last job in London was the most important thing to me became being within, yeah, about 15 minutes walking distance. Uh, I just had too much of the northern line, um, and, which I guess I, which I gather is a lot better now than in my days. But but yeah, I mean, and, and of course, walking in London is just a pleasure in itself. It um, and so that's that's really interesting. So you found yourself in London um, and uh, and then I guess you eventually returned to Milan. I did. So that was just before the pandemic. And you, you mentioned before the show that you wanted to get into this. So maybe this yeah. is a good time. Yeah. So it's February 2020. <laughs> I hand my resignation for the job in London. And I plan to, you know, take six months off, maybe travel South America and take some time for myself. Uh, I still have my apartment in London until the end of February. So uh, my plan was to come back home in Milan for a bit and then, you know, uh, depart to wherever I decided to go. Um, but, you know, I come back at the end of February and some big family issue comes up, which means I wouldn't be able to live um, soon because i have to take care of this but also you know a week later a couple, 10 days later at the beginning of march uh, lombardy my my region here in italy you know gets the worst outbreak after you know what happened in china and so it was really crazy like i was pumped to live and I was pumped to, you know, take some time for myself and travel around and backpacking and, you know, be done with technology for a while. But, you know, I seem to have left just before all of these uh, broke off. And so, yeah. the So you would have been like severely locked down for quite some time. Yeah, exactly. So... Milan wasn't in great shape, especially during the first lockdown. And, you know, I think as developers, we have, and I'm talking to the developers in the audience, maybe there are other people as well, for sure. But as developers, we are quite accustomed to being in a, in a closed space, in a closed environment for uh, hours on end. So it didn't affect me too much. And, you know, I could still walk outside because I'm, as I said, I'm not exactly in Milan. I'm in a small town ne near it. So uh, there, there wasn't exactly, you know, police going door to door, making sure that you wouldn't go out. And so the occasional walk around was allowed here because there's nobody to get in contact with and but yeah it was tough and it was tough seeing 
other people, you know, began being affected drastically by this. And yeah, but somehow now the, the situation is is pretty good. Um, as it is in, you know, in a lot of countries uh, around the world, we uh, we're getting our shot, like our job of vaccine and restaurants have opened up. I think this week gyms and cinemas have opened up uh, as well. So yeah, I'm th there is a, an atmosphere of optimism for sure. And so uh, you suddenly found yourself with a lot of time in an enclosed space on your hands that you weren't expecting. Um, uh, what did you end up doing with your time? Yeah, I almost forgot to mention, like, <laughs> um, yeah, I ended up writing a book and that wasn't even my initial plan. Like my initial plan was to record a screencast or some sort of video course because I think the kind of book that I ended up writing would have been much better suited in a video format. But as a non-native speaker and as a person that hasn't never recorded anything in their life, I realized that it would have taken me, like it would actually take me three hours between recording and editing to produce three minutes of decent quality video. So that, that was just too much effort for me. And at one point I thought, well, maybe if I have a script um, that I could follow, then the process would shorten a bit. It would be easier to, to record these videos. So I started writing the script for my videos and including you know, the snippets of code that I would have to write uh, uh, in the live coding uh, recording session. And that didn't really help. Like it still took me forever to record short bits of video. But looking at the script, like, and reading it through it, I realized that, you know, this could work on its own. Maybe if I package it nicely and I format it nicely, it could be its own thing. And I also really enjoyed, uh, you know, writing it. I enjoyed writing the script much more than reading it out loud and typing out the stuff that I that I wrote. And so the script became really the, the book. It was the seed for what became the book. And uh, yeah, I'm really glad I spent that time working on a personal project. It was. Um, like in, in the past few years, I had in the back of my mind that I had to, I wanted to produce something that I could call my own. Like I wanted to work on my own product, be that a software as a service business or an actual product like a book or a video course. I wanted to make something of my own. So I'm really glad, uh, in a sense that the pandemic forced me in front of a screen and uh, allowed me to to complete this project yeah that's such a that's such a an amazing an interesting story um uh it's it's funny um in the in the publishing world there's this there's been this phenomenon of covid books basically not but not about not about the pandemic but as a result of it um and to the point where like even more than usual publishers are like ah enough we've got enough submissions and stuff like that um, but it but it does take a lot of time to do to do a book and it, it does I just just to 
talk for a moment about videos um that's actually come up on this podcast in the past because so many of our guests are content creators themselves and um oh definitely it can take three hours to produce three minutes of good video um and uh you know people do talk about you know if you want to if you want to produce an hour long thing you might want to have you know a, a week you know available to do that um especially if you're doing your own editing and all that kind of stuff and in particular another issue with videos um is editing them later on if something yeah. changes and and it's 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 really it's really kind of impossible because recreating the space you were in the moment you were in if, if, you're, if you're recording yourself what you look like you know things like that um you know all if, if all of a sudden for 30 seconds you're tanned and the it's echoey, you know, and people can tell that you spliced it in. And so like, although videos are amazing resources for training and things like that, they really are a ton of work. Um, and, you know, I think it's funny, a lot of people will probably be like, you know, well, book doesn't sound so easy either. And, and it's not. Um, uh, but, uh, but it is definitely the case that, you know, editing a typo in a book, or changing, changing a sentence in a paragraph is a lot easier than doing it in a video. And so, yeah, moving on to the subject of your book, uh, Simple Haskell. So just before we dive into the book itself and the, the concept of Simple Haskell, which actually is a concept unto itself, um, it doesn't just mean like Simple Haskell, literally. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what Haskell is. I believe I've, I've watched a couple of talks that you gave preparing for this, and I've had a few, you know, Haskellers on in the past. But um, you talk about how Haskell was designed for three purposes. Um, one was to teach functional programming. Uh, one was to um, experiment with basically computer science concepts, and the other one was to build things. Um, yeah, so I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about its history and uh, you know what and 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 then 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 move into what your concept of simple Haskell is. Sure. So first of all, Haskell is a fairly old programming language compared to other mainstream languages. Like it, it is, I think, thirty-one years old this year. And so it, it is sort of natural for it to have accumulated a ton of stuff just because it has existed for, for this long. But yeah, it, it was born in, in an academia setting. And its purpose was to, as you said, teach functional programming to students, but also to advance the state of the art in language research. So it was really meant to be used as a tool or as, as a playground for language researchers to explore new avenues and come up with new ideas and new techniques in the programming language space, which meant that the compiler, you know, is really a very complicated beast because of this, because, you know, when a researcher or, a, you know, somebody is doing their PhD dissertation, they would hack on the compiler and add their own extension uh, to suit their needs, to introduce the new, this new novel concept that they're working on or that they're studying so that the compiler can, uh, can be able to understand it and, and work with it. But even before going there, so Haskell um, is kind of unique uh, in terms of programming languages because it's pure and lazy and we don't necessarily have to get into what that means but um, you sort of have to rewire your brain a bit in order to use it if you're accustomed to traditional programming languages so it's functional opposed to 
object-oriented, which most other programming languages are. And it's lazy in the sense that when you tell it to do something, it won't do it. <laughs> like it will refuse to do anything until it's, it is strictly necessary for it to do it. And this comes with uh, great benefits in terms of being able to express, you know, things such as infinite lists, which can't exist in traditional languages because you can't, we don't have infinite memory. And so a traditional programming language would just go out of memory if given an infinite list. But it also comes with its set of problems because uh, it is sometimes difficult to predict how a Haskell program is going to behave performance-wise. And you often hear people uh, complaining about space leaks, which means, you know, you were expecting this tiny little program to use a constant uh, amount of memory, and instead it's growing exponentially for some unknown reason. Um, so yeah, uh, Haskell is very old, it's more than 30 years old, and has been used successfully by language researchers, but at some point through its history, it also has picked up interest in the industry. So people that built real-world applications wanted to use it uh, to build their software. And it is kind of amazing that it managed to serve both crowds um, equally well. So language researchers haven't stopped using it to push the, you know, the envelope forward. And the industry hasn't stopped either. So more and more companies are uh, getting on board and using Haskell in one way or another. And this is great. Except that, as I was saying in the beginning, uh, we have a very complex beast in our hands. So it might seem like you have to know everything. You have to know all of the extensions that are in the compiler, even though some of them haven't been touched for 10 years or maybe have, uh, you know, have been introduced 15 years ago and then never to be spoken again, but they're there. And as a beginner, you don't know whether they're going to be useful to you or not. And the other issue with extensions is that it's very difficult to predict how they're going to interact with one another. And so you can pick and choose which extensions you want to enable in your program, but you might have you know, bad surprises because the compiler is gonna break in ways, not pleasant ways, let's just say that. So you will come up with errors that uh, are not really helpful and nasty stuff like that. So my aim with simple Haskell was to say, look, if you're a beginner or an intermediate uh, developer looking into Haskell, there's only a subset of core stuff and features that you, you have to care about. If you want to use other stuff, that's fine. Like you can read about it uh, on your on your own and it's all good. If you understand it, then by all means, bring it in and use it. But if you have no clue where to start, this is, you know, the core set of features that I think uh, is very productive and I think can be a good jumping point for teams that have little experience with functional programming to start using Haskell successfully.
Yeah, and it's a, it's a really interesting thing. A, a convincing a team um, to take up a new language is a very difficult thing because it's there's so much risk involved, right? It's not, it's not just the, the diff. In fact, most programmers would probably enjoy the challenge and, oh, oh, wow, isn't that great? I get to learn something new and it's going to make me a better programmer. But, you know, there's often, you know, someone sitting on top of it with a responsibility to deliver and you have to explain to them, oh, there's going to be, there's going to be a bit of a lag in our productivity while we take this on. And then actually we're steering our ship in a totally new direction software-wise. And that can be a really big challenge and being able to explain not only how, how Haskell is going to be beneficial, but how you're going to be able to train people up in it is really important. Exactly. And this comes like, this goes both ways. Like one big part of my argument was actually, like I was actually arguing for the opposite. Like I think in a lot of Haskell applications, we see a lot of complex code and uh, fancy types, uh, I like to call them that because they're they're fancy and they make you look smart, but they don't necessarily uh, bring a lot of benefits to the application. And this is subjective, and a lot of people will hate me for saying this. But you know, a big part of my argument is that they these advanced features are giving you only marginal benefits compared to the simpler version of the same program but they're actually building up a huge wall between you and the rest of the team because uh, you might be able to understand that stuff, but you're cutting off you know, the junior developer or even the experienced developer that has years of experience in another language, but couldn't translate that in Haskell because you, know, you, you have decided to buy into all of these advanced features. Well, and you're also presumably locking in the company uh, you're working for, assuming you're working for a company, to only being able to hire people with that level exactly. of, of understanding going forward once you've designed it, and which which isn't you know a, 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 as you say, it's, there's a bit of subjectivity to it. That's not necessarily proof that you shouldn't go down that path, but it that that you should understand that there's a cost to adopting what you call fancy types and being aware of what that is. Um, that reminds me, actually, you've got a project, I think it's your project called Zero Bullshit Haskell. Yes. Um, which is a bit more aggressive than saying simple Haskell. <laughs> but um, it's funny because it reminded me actually of something. Um, there was a philosopher named Jerry Cohen, who I, I happened to meet years and years ago, but he had a project called uh, Marxism Without the Bullshit. <laughs> and I don't know how familiar you are with Marxism, but basically the, the, the sort of suspicion was that what he was really after and his, his fellows were after was Marxism without the Hegel. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it just like, I mean, it's just, you know, it's just, there's just a bit of a correspondence I saw between like kind of, kind of getting, getting rid of the, the kind of philosophy and the obscure terminology and just sort of boiling it down to, you know, what are, what are the actual like, analytical purposes for which we're, you know, adopting this uh, in, in, you know, in, this, in this one ideology. <laughs> yeah, and again, this is like, I think this is a, it's important to, to say that this is only the, the first stepping stone. It's only to get your feet wet. And it's not like you can't, you can go uh, your whole career without studying the theory and without getting into the more advanced stuff. But uh, you know, it, it's really helpful, I think, especially for a person like me, you know, uh, as I said, I, I, I've always been very practical and I, I never had time to read big explanations and read huge uh, chunks of documentation. Like I wanted to be shown 
early on why something was the way it was and why it worked and why I needed it. And so my effort with Zero Bullshit Haskell was that like, show me why I care, why should I care? Yeah, no, that that's, I, I mean, I, as an, as a, pedagogical approach I couldn't agree more and, and you know it is it is true that often people when have a difficulty unfortunately some people's mindsets just have difficulty understanding that there's things are going to be expressed differently given the stage of the re intended recipient right and so my brother's got a joke that you know when people always say oh that's economics 101 and it's like well you don't have to actually teach at a university for long before you realize that everything in 101 is a lie uh, because because it's the first stage along the way, right? You can't you can't give them the end result, which is everything's up in the air and contested. In 101, you're going to learn, you know, everything works this way. We've got it figured out. You know, here are the simple rules, and it's like ah, you know, like, but you have to, but you have to go through. You have to exactly. go through Typically, you have to go through that. It's just a stage along the way. And so specifically, so you've you've written a book for people at the first stage. Um, uh, with simple Haskell, and this isn't necessarily people who like have never programmed before or something like that, but it's people who it's like, you want to get to know Haskell. Here's here's step one. Uh, read my book, uh, as I, if I, if I gather correctly what your purpose was. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you structured the book and what someone can expect to gain from it if they if they read it. Yeah. So the book is very hands on, and it's based around building a sort of real world application. So in the, build, in the book, we get to build a continuous integration server, which for the non-technical people, it's something that as developers we use every day and it's meant to you know build our projects and get them from our local machine to production, if you will. And so it isn't going to be a fully featured fully fledged uh, continuous integration server, but it's going to have uh, quite a few features that I think are interesting. And it has a, a interesting architecture as well with a you know, client server architecture and um, main server and multiple agents kind of deal as well. And it's built around Docker and it's inspired by Drone, which is a very popular CI server and hence the name quad as a tribute. And so what people can expect from the book, I think, is uh, to see like firsthand what it's like to think in a Haskell, to think functionally about a problem, how to model uh, a, a domain in a functional way and how you get from zero lines of code to a working application without you know, involving a ton of theory and a ton of big terminology. In fact, I, I tried really hard to not put uh, you know, crazy terms in, in the book, like monads and stuff like that, oh, yeah, even though they're timing, not. I was timing it. It took, it took us <laughs> about 45 minutes to get to the M word in a Haskell. <laughs> podcast yeah That's so well that <laughs> i i wish i didn't say that like <laughs> but yeah it, you know those are things that you get to use but you don't necessarily need to know you're using them to be proficient with it it's like putting a label on a pattern that you've been using on and on again i think it's more useful to know at a, an instant like a 
you know, deep down, you get, you have the pattern down, you know that this is an abstraction that uh, comes back over and over again. It's not necessarily useful to label it as a monad, like that's gonna just scare you and uh, make you realize that you don't know the actual definition of what a monad is and which laws it should abide and stuff like that. So I tried really hard to keep the theory out and there are great books out there if you care about that stuff. And if you want to learn Haskell from first principles, like that's uh, the main book people refer to when uh, somebody wants to get into Haskell. And I read it myself, it was 1200 pages long when I got it and it, it was incomplete. So maybe it is, right now it is even longer. And it's a great book. And I remember the, the part I uh, liked the most uh, in that book, it was a little section kind of in the middle of the book where uh, the author uh, went through building a sort of small application from scratch. So there was this little uh, chapter uh, building, I think it was a URL shortener. So a very tiny project but still incredibly uh, um, you know, enlightening for somebody like me, which wanted to know, okay, now how do I use all of this stuff you've been telling me about for 600 pages? And so you can think of my book like that section expanded to a full-fledged book. I like to think that you know, all the theory is um, nailed in other books and in other resources. But then when you get when it gets to the practical stuff, you can refer to to my book to actually see the workflow and the tiny tips and tricks that a Haskell developer would use on a daily basis to build a real world application. And uh, yeah, just uh, moving on to the last part of the interview where we talk about your experience, you know, writing, writing a book and, and things like that. Um, I guess my first question would be, why did you decide to choose LeanPub as the platform to publish the book in the end? Yeah, so I explored different options. Uh, not sure if I'm allowed to name other competitors or similar uh, platforms, but like <laughs> totally. Although just the, the only qualification I would say is we we try to be nice about everybody. So, but but it's okay. Cool, to, cool. It's okay to say whatever you want. Yeah. So uh, my my initial thought was to go with Gumroad and just host the you know, the publishing on my, like the, the landing page or the, the book page on my website and just have a tiny button that would go to Gumroad and have readers purchase it there. But then I sort of realized that, you know, there's a friction in the buying process. And so I personally don't have a Gumroad account and I personally would be at least a little bit skeptical in uh, putting my card details in their uh, thing, not because it's a bad service, but like at least here in Europe, it's not that uh, common to buy stuff off of it. It might be different in North America. I think it's more widespread over there. But um, you know, the, the the biggest reason it seemed is that it seemed Limpub had a big uh, section on Haskell books, and so I thought. Most people that are going to be interested in my book probably already have a LeanPub account and already they already have their card details linked up. And so the purchase is going to be 
much you know, is, there's going to be much uh, less friction in purchasing it and yeah just um, leveraging the network effects i think of a platform like limpub where there seem to be quite a bit quite a lot of uh quality haskell books and i realized that it might not be the answer you were looking for like i i used very few features of the platform itself although you know if I were to do it again, I, I would probably uh, leverage the platform a bit more. Like I would uh, collect email addresses and use the discussions forum uh, for sure to, to share early drafts uh, of the book. But I didn't use any of that. Like I sort of came to Limpub with a almost finished product and I yeah, I, I'm glad I went with Limpub in the ad because it, it, you know, it turned out to be a great platform. Yeah, thanks very much for that. Um, I should uh, one thing I should say is that, um, and I, I'm actually looking forward to asking you specifically how you created your your PDF file because that's something that, and we save this for the end. So, like you know, people who aren't interested in learning about self publishing don't need to listen to it. But uh, people who are interested really like to hear about the details about how people went about doing it. And your book is very nice, so I'm curious to hear about that. Um, one thing I should mention, though, is that we actually don't save payment details on LeanPub. So, oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, we don't we don't save them. But um, but um, one of the advantages for existing LeanPub people with LeanPub accounts is that they've got a lot. We've got a you've got a LeanPub library, right? And so, if there's a one one place to go for your, you know, at least one collection of books that you've bought. And so, you know, maybe yours is next to, you know, Sandy McGuire's or Chris Penner's yeah, exactly. or something like that. You know, that's that's actually one of the one of the things that's really that is actually really handy. And the other thing is too that um, LeanPub makes it really easy to um, update the book, um, regardless of whether you're using as you are as, as you mentioned, you're using our bring your own book writing flow. So you're not writing your book using LeanPub tools. You're writing it using your own tools, but you can then still easily update you can if you need if, if it's a major update you can send a message to anyone who's opted in to hear about major updates you know we've got coupons and you can add di arbitrary digital content like code and things like that so there are a lot of things if you're writing if you're basically if you're writing a technical programming book we've just got a lot of extra things around it um but yeah we don't we don't save payment details yeah um, and so and so yeah and so um how did you make your book did you did you use word and play around with formatting did you use something else I used Vim, which is, uh, okay. yeah, for non-technical people, it's one of those weird uh, 80s looking editors that you use from the terminal of your computer. And so my book is really a huge markdown file, which I then turn into a PDF through a set of uh, somewhat complex phases. Like there's a lot of scripting involved and yeah i couldn't i couldn't explain to be honest what the whole process was but like there's a lot of parsing markdown to understand what the you know the headings are in order to create a, the table of content there's a script to stitch together the different parts of the book so the cover the table of contents then there's the introduction which is a separate markdown file for some reason 
and there's uh, yet other scripts to format the chunks of code in a nice way. And uh, there is quite a bit of CSS to uh, render the page nicely. And then at the end, yeah, there's something that turns this giant HTML file into a PDF. And I gotta say, I'm, I'm pretty happy with how it, turns, it turned out. It, it took me quite a bit of time to nail this pipeline of glue code and scripts and put them together. Maybe it, was, it would have been wiser to just stick it into Limpub and have you guys generate it. It would have been certainly less effort. Yeah, thank you very much for that. It's um, it's really interesting, actually. You know, um, uh, you're not the first LeanPub Lean author to have devised their own process. Um, and uh, a lot of the way LeanPub works is actually from over the years, from talking to people just about exactly kind of the, what you just described and learning from authors how they solve their own problems and then trying to bake that in to some extent to the way LeanPub works. But um, yeah, there's a, you know, using someone else's process, there's always a bit of a trade-off, right? And um, if you really want to get things exactly the way you want, um, you do it your own way. Typically, our you know the sort of like you know lean pub model would be um, while you're writing, um, don't worry. Try not to worry about formatting. It's kind of impossible, for, you know, at least if you have mind mindset like mine. But like, try not to worry about it. And then when you're done writing, um, then then you do your formatting. And that's actually one of the reasons that we have the bring your own book writing mode is that you can actually write in a lean pub mode. And then when you're done, um, you can if you want to, you can actually hand it off to a professional book designer or something like that. And then you can, and then you can upload the resulting files um, with the you know professionally designed and things like that. But yeah, thanks very much for sharing that process. Um, uh, if you ever wrote a blog post about it, I bet you'd get a lot of people uh, interested in hearing about about what you did. Well, uh, Marco, actually, I, I guess it's been about an hour, close to an hour, that we've been talking. Uh, so just to wrap things up, um, the last question I always like to ask if the guest has published something on LeanPub is if there was one magical feature we could build for you, or one terribly annoying thing about lean pub that we could fix for you uh can you think of anything you would ask us other than storing payment information can you think of anything that you, <laughs> you could ask us to do i actually consider that a feature like i, I i've worked at places where uh payment information weren't exactly stored in a sensible way so i'm glad to see you know companies uh not doing that because then there's no way of screwing up but yeah, I don't have any major complaints. One thing I remember uh, annoyed me just a tiny bit was the uh, embed feature. So you guys give um, a chunk of HTML that you can copy paste on your website, and then a widget comes up with information about the book and a button to, to buy it. And I remember being annoyed because it had a single layout. So it sort of has a vertical layout, if I remember correctly. And I wanted it to be horizontal. Like I think a vertical layout is really difficult to fit in a traditional web page. So if it had been horizontal, I would probably have put it on my, you know, my website page. This is very, very minor. And uh, you know, there are ways to work around it, but I think it's a, uh, you know, it's a nice improvement for little effort. Yeah, no, that's that's very interesting. I'll make a I'll make a task and we'll we'll discuss it, uh, probably actually just later today um, in our next development meeting. Um, because uh, and not no promises or anything like that, but but actually not like the moment you mentioned it, it's like yeah, the the, the sort of vertical embed thing just does seem really kind of like 
old school, you know, like a, that, that's, that's a bit anachronistic now and people like their 16 by nine type <laughs> exactly. kind of things. Um, so yeah, well, I'll, I'll talk about that with the team today. Uh, well, yeah, um, thanks very much, Marco, for taking the time. What I'm sure was a beautiful evening in a small town near Milan. <clears throat> and uh, thanks very much for uh, being on the podcast. And thanks for having me. It's been great fun. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a Lean Pub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.